Acts chapter 2, verse 25 through verse 41. If you would, please stand with me, church family, for the reading of God's word. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and, it, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father and our God, you are the God who spoke to your prophet Joel, the God who spoke to your prophet and your king David, and Lord, the God who now speaks to us through the words of Peter as recorded by Luke. Lord, we see all of this glory, all of this goodness, all of this grace, and the gospel is proclaimed here in Acts chapter 2, and we ask, Lord, that we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would make good use of it today, that we would not waste this reading and this hearing of your word, but Lord, today we would be attentive, we would focus our hearts and our minds, and that the Holy Spirit would come and intercede for us here in this time, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If uh, any of you in here are uh, travelers or have done much traveling by airplane, then you will agree with me when I say that air travel can be especially annoying, especially traveling uh, overseas and to other countries and internationally where not only do you have the headaches of trying to figure out gates and departures and layovers and 
all of these different things, but you also have oftentimes language barriers that come into play as well. I was reminded of, of kind of this headache of air travel as I was having a conversation with someone this last week and, and reminiscing about a time when myself and, uh, and Josh and a few other members of our church, as we were attempting to make our way back from Nepal, found ourselves in Singapore with phones that did not work and around people that did not understand English and being told from the lady behind the counter, we don't have your tickets. Uh, that was a not only very stressful time, but a pretty scary moment in my life uh, as I was there uh, just left with absolutely nothing to say or nothing to do, just hoping and praying that somehow things would change from what this lady just told me and that somehow she would have my tickets. And by God's grace, she did. And uh, she got her manager and they found our tickets online. You know, everything's online nowadays and uh, we were able to make it home safely. But Air travel, especially overseas and, and in these kinds of situations, is a very stressful thing. So with the stress of air travel, imagine with me a scenario where you were to go and you were to get on a plane, and the pilot says, I'm a very experienced pilot. I've been piloting airplanes for all this time. I, I know how to do all the best maneuvers, all the best tricks in the business. Uh, you are in for an amazing flight, and you get on the flight anticipating going to your destination. And, and on this flight, the pilot does some amazing things. He banks to the left, he banks to the right, he does a loop-de-loop, he does a corkscrew, and honestly, just took you for the ride of your life. An amazing, an amazing ride. And then as this most amazing pilot who's been doing this for years lands and you get off the plane, you realize, wait a second, we're back in the place that we started. We didn't go anywhere. You did some cool things on the flight. You did some neat maneuvers, some, some cool tricks in the, in the air, but the flight ultimately was a waste of my time and a waste of my money and a waste of my energy because it didn't accomplish what it ought to have done, and that is take me from here to my parents' house across the country. The flight was a waste. It was a bust. It was useless as much as it might have been entertaining, fun. Certainly, the pilot was skilled in, in various ways as a pilot, and yet the Pilot failed in his duty to get you from your destination to the other. This can be true of preaching as well. Where in preaching, there can be pastors, preachers, who can do some amazing things with speech, who have the gift of, of oratory, the gift of speech, and are able to say and, and talk in a way that is eloquent and that is moving and that makes you go, ooh, and awe, oh, and they use poetry and, and words that we've never heard of before. And, and we can be greatly amazed at the things that some people are able to do from behind the pulpit or in front of a crowd. And yet, even in that, there are cases where preachers who are very, very gifted public speakers ultimately can preach and preach and preach and completely fail in the task that they were given, having not taken his congregation, his hearers, from the place where they are to the place where they ought to be when the gospel is rightly preached. This is not what we see from Peter today. In fact, we see from Peter an example of how not to do that, uh, how to be a preacher that arrives at the destination that we ought to arrive at when we preach the gospel. We see here from this very first Christian sermon ever preached, here by the apostle Peter, that 
We see what true preaching looks like even in the destination to which it ought to bring us. And we'll see this in three ways. First of all, in the testimony of David, as we see from the Psalms, we will see this in uh, where Jesus now sits on his throne. And then finally, what the right response, response is to true preaching. We see here in the beginning, this is point number one, the testimony of David is what the Apostle Peter now brings us to as he reads from the Psalms. And he reads this testimony of David, of what David said. And he says this, David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. We see here these words of David as the Apostle Peter is now repeating them to us here. And what we see in this is another picture as we saw from the example of Joel, another picture of right expositional preaching, taking the very word of God as spoken by David and preaching it, expounding upon it to the congregation. We see here specifically another case, another glorious case of Peter preaching Christ from the Old Testament, which is how the Old Testament ought to be preached. We see examples of this both in Uh, Jesus on the road to Emmaus as he proclaimed to his disciples after his resurrection. It says that he spoke to them of Moses and the prophets and the law. All these things concerning Christ. You see another picture of Christ being preached from the Old Testament. And what it results in. And the example of the Ethiopian eunuch. If you're not familiar with that story. We'll get there in in probably a couple months. It's in Acts chapter 8 where we see the example of Philip. Who is who is transported miraculously to this place where there is a eunuch in his chariot, and he's reading the word of God. He's, in fact, reading from the prophet Isaiah. And Philip goes over to the chariot, to the eunuch, and says, excuse me, sir, do you understand what you're reading? And uh, and the eunuch responds, well, how am I supposed to understand unless someone explains it to me? And so Philip joins the eunuch in the chariot and begins to explain to him what the text says. And in Acts chapter 8, we see recorded what the text said. In verses 32 through 35 of Acts 8, we see this. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. Now, we know if if you have grown up in the church, you perhaps have heard this passage before. This is from Isaiah chapter 53, this most amazing uh, text referring to the Messiah. And as we now know where we stand today, that this is speaking of Christ. But this eunuch here in the chariot was unaware. He was unaware of the reality that this was speaking of Jesus. And so in verse 34, and the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then in verse 35 is the good part. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. In this encounter with the eunuch, as Philip is brought here to this man who's reading the prophet Isaiah, reading about Christ but doesn't know it, 
It's Philip's joy and his privilege to tell him this is about Jesus. This man who lived here on earth, who did all these amazing signs and wonders, who was crucified, who was murdered unjustly, and then rose from the grave. This is who the prophet Isaiah was talking about. And as we know from the story, it resulted in the repentance and faith of this eunuch, and he was baptized there on the spot. Philip did exactly what Peter is doing here and exactly what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus as he taught his disciples in Luke 24. He's preaching Christ from the Old Testament, from the prophet, or excuse me, from the prophecy that David gave. And this is a helpful principle for us as, as just kind of an aside. As, as we study the Word of God, as we study the Old Testament, I oftentimes hear people saying, I have a hard time understanding the Old Testament. The, the New Testament makes sense to me. It's an, written in a very way that's understandable. It's about Christ. It is uh, then given, we give, are given from the apostles, clear teaching and instruction, uh, revelation. Maybe I don't understand that. But by and large, the New Testament, I understand it. I get it. But the Old Testament is difficult. It's hard to understand when I read these prophecies, when I read of the law, when I read of these stories in Genesis and Exodus and I'm left oftentimes confused. And while certainly some of these texts are going to be difficult to understand no matter what, and they, they require our diligent study and, and, and attention, what I oftentimes find is that one thing that is lacking when people read the Old Testament that is causing them to not see it clearly and understand it rightly is that they are not reading it through the lens of the New Testament. They are not reading it in light of Christ. Because when you begin to read in this way, when you begin to read your Old Testament, recognizing that Christ is the point of the whole of this book, that what the Old Testament was doing was leading us towards, pointing us toward the promised coming Messiah. Ever since Genesis 3, this is what the Old Testament has been directing our attention to, pointing us to the coming of Christ. You will begin to find that the Old Testament takes on a whole new light, a whole new understanding when you begin to read it through this lens, the lens of Christ. But what we see here in, in Peter's sermon, what the, the point that he's bringing us to, what is the point that he is making by reading Psalm 16? How is it that this is pointing to Christ, as I've just said? He brings up Psalm 16 to show that Christ was the Messiah. There's one particular point, especially in this psalm, that he focuses on, and that's in verse 27, where he says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. The point he's making from this text and specifically focusing on this passage is he is saying, was David speaking of himself or was he speaking of another? It's the same question that the eunuch asked Philip. Who is this passage about? And the point that Peter is making is it's obviously not about David. It has to be about someone else. It can't be about David because as we know, David died. His soul was abandoned to Hades. His body did see corruption. It could not be that David was the one discussed here in this prophecy, that he was not speaking of himself but another. And this was not something foreign to the Jews they knew that this was often the way David wrote in the Psalms, that regularly as he spoke in the first person, oftentimes it was a speaking prophetically about the coming Messiah, about the promised one to come. And so 
Peter makes the point here, like in some of those other Psalms, that is what's happening here, that he's not talking about himself, but about another. And who could this other person be? Well, he goes on to make that point clear as well. He says, this is Jesus. One of the things you notice in Peter's preaching is that it involves reason and reasoning, rationality. That is not, his preaching, his teaching is not separated from reason. The, the listeners of his sermon are not called to check their minds at the door before they enter to listen to him preach. There's a way of preaching that is not found in Peter here, but there is a way of preaching that, that some engage in that is very detached from reasoning, very detached from rationality, and oftentimes very focused on emotion. These are the kind of preachers that oftentimes you go and you listen to them and you think, man, that was really something, but I don't know what you just taught. I don't know why I should accept or believe what you just said. A lot of it didn't make sense. There is a problem in preaching in this way whenever you are heavily relying on emotion upon this kind of manipulation in order to effectively preach because the problem is you're not effectively preaching. People might be impressed. They might ooh and awe. But what have you actually taught them? If there is no true teaching, no true insight, no true reasoning involved in your teaching and in your preaching, then it's not effective preaching. If you need, there are some helpful hints in trying to diagnose if this is happening or not. If you're preaching and you find yourself calling for the organ to hype people up, well, you're probably not relying on the right things in your preaching. If you're preaching and the lights tend to get dimmer and higher at certain points in your sermon, then that's, that's, you're probably not relying on the right things in your teaching. If your preaching involves you doing a lot of, ah, you know, ah, as you preach, it might be exciting. Some of you just got woke up. But what did that accomplish? It accomplished nothing with regards to teaching and instructing regarding Christ. Not so with Peter's teaching. His teaching, his preaching, as all true preaching should, involves reasoning, making clear the point you are trying to make. So Peter calls on his listeners to look to the grave of David and then look to the grave of Jesus and decide for themselves, who is this prophecy about? Look to David's grave. You know what you'll find? David's body, corrupted, broken down, decaying. But look at Jesus' grave, and you know what you'll find? Nothing. Jesus' grave is empty. Jesus' flesh did not see corruption. Jesus was not abandoned to Hades. The argument is pretty simple and straightforward and very sound. One of their graves is empty and one of them isn't. So if this prophecy is about one of these two figures, who is it? The answer is clear. The answer is Christ. The rationality, the reasoning is simple. It's as simple as if you've seen those videos where there's a, a child uh, and there are brownies missing from the kitchen. And the mom says, did you eat the brownies? And the kid says, no, I didn't eat the brownies. And then the camera pans over and the kid's covered in chocolate. It's like, 
Are you sure you didn't eat the brownies? Nope, didn't eat the brownies. It doesn't take very much rationality. It doesn't take a, a brain surgery. You don't have to put on your thinking cap in order to deduce what happened here. The kid ate the brownies. It's obvious. It's evident. It's just as evident that this prophecy was about Christ, not David, because Christ's grave was empty. The point is clear. This psalm wasn't about David. It was about the Messiah, and that Messiah is clearly Christ. And we know this because his body, like the psalm says, did not see corruption. The grave where he was is empty. And I said is. It still is to this day. It is empty. Once Peter has established this fact of where Jesus isn't, he then moves on to where Jesus is. Point number two, this Jesus now sits on the throne. Verse 32 through 36 of our text says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The statements being made here by Peter were cause for serious concern on the part of the Jews who were listening. It's of serious concern because the expected result of these statements and what it brings to the listeners is guilt. We spoke last week uh, uh, to a certain extent on guilt. If you weren't here last week, you can go and, and listen to that. But guilt is the thing that drives people to realize their need of a Savior. You cannot come to a right understanding of the gospel in a place of repentance and trusting in Christ if you do not first realize your guilt. We have no need of a savior if we do not realize that we are guilty. We first need to realize what we need saving from before we can realize Christ's salvation. The strange thing about guilt, though, is that sometimes people don't feel guilty. We can see this and play it out in reality. If you have ever, uh, as I know I have, been shopping at the grocery store and you pay and you leave with your items, and you get out to the car and realize, oops, there's something in my cart that I didn't pay for. I have stolen this item, and I'm guilty. Now, your walk from the door, from the cash register all the way out to your car, did you feel guilty? No. But, well, I hope not. If you did, you should have turned around sooner. You didn't feel guilty because you weren't aware of that guilt. But does that mean that you weren't guilty? No. You were still guilty. You still left without paying for that item, and you took it. You stole it, albeit unintentionally. Therefore, the right thing to do is to rectify that. Once you're aware of that guilt, go in and pay for that item. In the same way, when you get pulled over by a police officer for going 20 miles an hour over the speed limit, and he says, hey, you're, you're guilty of speeding. You can't say, well... I don't feel guilty. You're guilty. He caught you. You're guilty. Regardless of how you feel about it, you are 
guilty. But guilt is not based on how we feel. We're either guilty or we're not, regardless of whether or not we feel guilty. This is a part of the responsibility that we as believers have to the lost. I know it sounds weird to say, but a part of what we are called to do in evangelism is make people feel guilty. Make them feel the weight of their sin, realize that they are guilty, not before us, not that they have sinned against us or against humanity or against the culture or whatever, but they've sinned against a holy God and they stand before him guilty. That is the reality in which they stand, whether they feel it or not. It is our job to bring them to that reality. Bring them to face to face with their guilt. The shock of what these men, these Jews have done to an innocent man, it ought to bring conviction. They ought to feel that guilt. And the conviction and the guilt are compounded, compounded even more by the reality that this Jesus is the Messiah the one of whom David spoke. Their level of guilt and conviction just just went from here up to here. But it didn't stop there. The conviction and the guilt and the fear is compounded even more when they are told that this Jesus now sits on the throne of heaven at God's right hand. This would have likely, as it should, invoked not only guilt, but a great sense of fear. Knowing that the one whom they murdered has authority over all things. That takes this feeling of guilt to the next level and causes it to be, as it should be, a sense of fear. It is a good and right thing to fear the Lord. Because whether we like to think of it or not, our God is a just and righteous and holy God. And as the scriptures make clear, he will not tolerate sin. No evildoer will go unpunished. All sin is punished. And I know you are desperate for me to get to the good part of the gospel, and I'm going to, I promise. Just hang in there with me. This would have likely invoked a great deal of fear and guilt on the part of these Jews, as it should. As it should all sinners. For all of us stand guilty before a holy God and the very one whom we despise and we hate and are just as guilty as of crucifying as the Jews now has authority over all things this reminds me of the story that we see from Joseph in Genesis and as Joseph and his brothers at the end of Genesis they come before him and uh, this really happens twice when they first realize that this leader in Egypt is their brother that they that they betrayed and that they They thought about killing, but ultimately sold into slavery and then was a slave in Egypt. That this brother who they had wronged so severely was now in charge of giving them food to survive. Not to mention the fact that he could have had them beheaded without even a a question. But then again at the end of Genesis, after their their father dies and they think he was the last hope we had of, of forgiveness, of grace from Joseph and so they come before Joseph desperately afraid and in this case as is so often throughout the story of Joseph we see Christ typologically portrayed we see a foreshadowing of what would come in Christ because what is Joseph's response 
He doesn't crush them. He doesn't have them killed. He doesn't destroy them, but rather forgives them, shows them grace, shows them mercy, which is when we begin to see the good news of the gospel coming out because that is what Christ has done for us. But this is the right posture for a sinner to take when they're faced with guilt. It is right to fear as Joseph's brothers did, as the Jews now did as Peter was speaking. This is the same posture David took after his sin with Bathsheba when he said, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He knew that he had sinned against a holy God and he knew the wrath of God that he deserved. And it's this posture that leads to the final results that we see in verses 37 through verse 41. And what is point number three, the right response to true preaching. In verse 37, we see this statement. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This is the response that these Jewish listeners are brought to when faced with their guilt and when brought to through the right fear, recognizing that Jesus Christ, whom they crucified, now sits on the throne. They were left saying, what hope do we have? What can we do? And Peter is certainly happy to tell them. Where the gospel is rightly preached, truly preached, the Holy Spirit is present and working and will bring about this kind of response in the hearers. Now, when I say this, does this mean that every time uh, a preacher preaches rightly, that thousands will come to faith? No, that's not what I mean. In fact, I have preached many, many sermons and rarely seen people come to faith in Christ. But does that mean that the Holy Spirit is not active that he is not working through the right preaching of the gospel, through the right teaching of his word? Absolutely not. The Holy Spirit, where the gospel is preached rightly, is always active, always moving, so that the word of God never returns void. The good news for preachers of God's word is that the Holy Spirit moves as the truth is preached, regardless of any particular methods or modes that we employ. When you look at how Peter concludes this sermon, and we see that at the very end, 3,000 souls were added that day. 3,000 people came to faith in Christ that day. But look at how Peter concludes his sermon. You notice a few things. Notice he doesn't give an extended altar call saying just one more person needs to come forward and then we will conclude the service. He doesn't say, everyone close your eyes, bow your heads, and repeat this prayer after me. And then say, with your eyes still closed, raise your hand if you prayed that prayer. Peter doesn't do any of that. And yet 3,000 souls are saved. Why? Because the Holy Spirit does the work where the gospel is rightly preached. Now, there might be some of you in the pews right now saying, that's how I came to faith in Christ. And here's the good news. The Holy Spirit does the work regardless of the methods or modes that are used. I am not a fan of asking people to bow their heads, repeat after me, raise your hand. But the cool thing is, even if it is done that way, which I think is not a good way to do it, the gospel is proclaimed and the Holy Spirit can still move and still work. So that even where it is done poorly, 
the Holy Spirit can still move and people are still saved. All of this ought to cause us to see a great deal of confidence when we proclaim the truth, when we evangelize to those around us. We can know that our responsibility is not to just bring this person, whether they want it or not, into faith in Jesus Christ. Our responsibility is to proclaim the gospel. If we've done that, then we've done all that we have to do, and in fact, all that we can do. And regardless of how well we think we've done it, whether we've tripped over our words, whether we've stumbled, whether we uh, said Jesus instead of Joseph or Noah instead of Moses, the Holy Spirit is able to work through that, what we consider to be poor proclamation of the gospel, just as much as if John Piper himself were there preaching to that person, or Billy Graham, or name the preacher. The Holy Spirit is not any less active through the proclamation of the gospel of one single church member than he is the greatest preacher in the world. And this is again where we begin to see the gleanings that we take from Peter's sermon apply, not just to me as the preacher, not just to me and Aaron and Robert as elders, but to all of us as the people of God. When the gospel is rightly proclaimed, the Holy Spirit is present. Take confidence in this church family as you proclaim the gospel to the world around you. Don't let fear of messing it up or fear of not doing it well or fear of public speaking keep you from doing it. Proclaim the good news. Tell people what God has done for you and in your life and tell them the same thing. Show them their guilt. Show them their need of a Savior and the grace that is freely available in Christ Jesus. Because as we see here, these Jews have just been declared guilty of crucifying Christ. They were guilty of crucifying him by the hands of these wicked Romans And yet, 3,000 of them are saved. 3,000 of them, after being faced with the reality of their sin and their guilt, repented and trusted in Christ. And each and every one of them who repented and trusted in Christ was forgiven. Of murdering Jesus, each and every one was forgiven. Their guilt was removed, and they were cleansed as white as snow. There is such a testament to the amazing grace of God in this. The murderers of the Messiah were now adopted as sons of God and forgiven. Who is it that can't experience God's grace and his forgiveness and his mercy? Not a one of us. It is available to all. No one is beyond his reach. But notice that the forgiveness was not automatic. The forgiveness found in the blood of Christ was not automatically applied to all guilty people. If this were the case, that would be universalism. The idea, the false teaching that all people are forgiven of their sins in Christ Jesus, regardless of their faith, regardless of their belief or lack thereof. And that's obviously not the case. There are many who still are not forgiven of their sins, though Christ's blood has been shed. If that were the case, there would be no need for us to tell people of their guilt. There would be no need for us to tell people of what they deserve, the way Peter did in Acts. In fact, to do that would simply be mean-spirited, to tell people how guilty they are and to condemn them if they are already forgiven by Christ's blood. 
Rather, what we see is that Christ's blood, the forgiveness found in him that he offers, is applied only to those who trust in him by faith and repent of their sin. This is where the message comes to a point. This is where it meets us, where it meets the sinner. If you are here in this place today and you are faced with your guilt and your shame, and you're feeling the weight of that right now, let me assure you, forgiveness is no more available for, uh, for these, it is no less available for you than it was for these men who murdered Jesus. If you simply repent and trust in Christ, the very Christ who died for your sin, it was your sin that caused him to have to go to the cross, and yet he is ready and able to forgive even you. If, as Peter says, you repent of your sin and trust in Christ, this is the only way. The flight that we are currently on took off back in verse 14, and certainly there have been exciting ups and downs in Peter's sermon. There have been moments of of wow and amazement, and we only have a portion of the sermon. As we see in in verse 40, he, he continued to exhort them with other things this is only a portion of his sermon and yet we see it has ups and it has downs and it is an amazing sermon but this sermon and the purpose of this flight was to arrive at this destination that peter brings us to sinners forgiven lives freed from guilt and a slavery to sin and the church established This is the point of the flight. This is the destination. Regardless of what it looks like and how we get there, the destination is what matters here. And my prayer is that this would be the destination of Redeemer Fellowship Church. As we are gathered here together, as I preach, as you go out into your workplaces and as we fellowship, that this would be the end of all these things, the destination to which we arrive. Sinners saved forgiveness doled out, guilt removed, and the church of God established. May this be our prayer today. Let's pray.